That's nice. That's good response. That's good. Yeah, you're all listening. Well, you'll still be listening at the end. It's a different question. Amen. It's great to be in the time of worship this morning. And really, I want to kind of build on what God has already been speaking this morning. Because I really believe that God is calling us as men and women of the River Church to be people who stand for God. And I don't know this morning what your situation is like this morning. You might be in a situation where things are really tough and really difficult and you've had a bad week or you've had a bad month or a bad year. Or it might be that you've had a fantastic year. You're in a, in a great place. The Lord is blessing you abundantly and everything you're doing is amazing. Or it might be that probably like the most of us, you're kind of somewhere in the middle. And life's just kind of going on and ticking on. But the truth is, it doesn't matter where we are in our, with our lives and our situation, God is calling us to be men and women who stand for him. And so we, this morning, are going to look in the story of Daniel. Now, and what I want to do, I'm going to take us through the book of Daniel. I'm going to pick out three key stories in it. And we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a journey. We're going to start when Daniel and his friends were young men. And then we're going to kind of move on to a time when things were a lot more settled and things were sorted for them. And then we're going to look right at the end when Daniel was an old man. So it's kind of our life stages moving forward. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. I've heard the story of Daniel a thousand times. And I'm sorry if you have, but I hope you'll bear with me. And hopefully this morning, God will reveal something fresh to you this morning. Or it might be that you've never heard this story before. You've only heard it a few times and it will be quite exciting for you to go through. Because I love stories and I love reading through them. And so what I'm going to do... Um, we're gonna, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase most of the story because otherwise we're here till like two o'clock if I read it all through word for word. And I've got some of the key scriptures on the screen. Now I like reading the Message Bible but I know not everyone else is a fan. And so what I've done, I've, when we get to the scriptures, you'll see there's a lot of text and you think, oh no. But don't worry, I've put the message on one side and another translation, the New Living on the other side. So you can kind of follow both ways. Or if I get a little bit boring, you can just read that instead. Okay, so let's start with a bit of background. Because I always like to give it a context to the story. Now, before you think, oh no, Mark's going to go for the whole story of the Bible, I'm not. But basically, this is kind of a, just a pictorial form of when God created things, to create, um, he called in Adam and making a people for himself right all the way back up to, uh, to Jesus. But we're in this kind of stage here where God has given the Israelites the promised land and he said, I want you to be my people but they keep going away from him. And he's saying, like, I can't live with that. You've got, to keep, you've got to come back to me. And he keeps sending loads of prophets to tell them, you're messing up, I was. I have to come and deal with you. But they don't listen. And so God sends this man, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he was the king of Babylon. And he was a great man. And at the time, he was the most powerful man in the world. He had the biggest kingdom and the biggest army. Now, he wanted, he wanted to do what all great kings wanted to do. He wants to expand his land. And he saw there was another power that he wanted to, to conquer, and that was Egypt. But the problem with Egypt is that Israel was in the way. And so he had to conquer them on the way through. And it just so happened, God planned it all. So when, he went to, when he wanted to attack, it was the time that God wanted to deal with the people of Israel. And so King Nebuchadnezzar came and he conquered the nation of Israel. Oh, sorry, the title, technically this was the nation of Judah. I won't go into that. Now, as you can kind of see, uh, the there we go. So this is, this is the Babylonian Empire, this kind of blue bit. There's Egypt down here, and here is uh, Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. And there's Babylon over there. Now, now, King Nebuchadnezzar was a lot of things, but actually he was a very clever king because he had a really good tactic for when he conquered lands. So what he would do, he would go in, he would conquer it, 
But what he would do, he'd basically take away all the top, he would go and get all the best things from the land, and that included all the best people. So he would take some of the royal family, some of the government, all the top professionals, all the really clever, wise people, and would take them and take them for himself. And this kind of served two main purposes. One, as it basically left the nation he'd conquered in turmoil, and they would be too busy trying to sort themselves out rather than trying to rebel against him. And secondly, it meant he got all the best people for his own kingdom. And what he would do is bring them in there, he would indoctrinate them into the, the nation of Babylon and about how great he was and about how great their gods were. And he would get them to be part of his nation because then he's got all the best people. And also, if they're living a really nice, happy, well-off well life in Babylon, they're not going to want to go back to their old nations, they're not going to want to go back and cause any trouble, they'll be quite happy. So he was a quite a clever king. And so this is where we pick up in the story in Daniel, in chapter 1. And he's, this is Daniel, Daniel and his friends are young men, the nation has been, uh, uh, has been conquered, and they are taken um, over to Babylon. I hope you can read that. If you can't, you can read it in uh, Daniel chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Thank you, Miriam. And so these guys, they're young men. This is the kind of young stage of their lives. And they have been deemed to be quite clever and quite wise, and they're taken off. And they're going to go off into Babylon. They're going to sit in Babylonian University for three years, learning all about how good King Nebuchadnezzar is and how good the nation of Babylon is and how great their gods are. And so they're going to be indoctrinated like this. But I want you just to take a minute just to think about actually what happened to these young men. Because they had been captured and they'd been taken off into slavery. And they have lost everything. They're the people of God and they have lost the land that they were promised. They've been taken away from their families, from their nation, from their land, from their culture, and they've been taken away from their God because God lived in the temple in Jerusalem and that was where they had to go and worship and they were going thousands of miles away if you look back to the map. And so their temple's over there and they've been taken all the way over here. And they were far away from everything. They had lost everything. And I don't know what your situation is like this morning, but I'm sure none of us here can say that we've actually been captured and taken off into slavery. And I found that something quite um, uncomfortable about potentially what might have happened to them. Because they were going to be trained up to be wise men. Now apparently all the wise men of Babylon uh, were eunuchs. So it probably meant they were also castrated. Which, you know, if you're a man, it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. So literally, they had not only lost all their... Um, they basically lost their whole identity about them being the people of God. And they, um, and they were going to go and be indoctrinated into the land, uh, the, um, land of Babylon. In fact... It says here that the Babylonians even tried, even changed their names. And I did a bit of research. And this is what the Hebrew name means. It's all about God, our God, and him um, being gracious and helpful. And they changed all their names to foreign God names. And they basically cut it out. So they're trying to cut people away from God. And so poor Daniel and his friends were in this situation, probably feeling completely and utterly abandoned. What would you do in this situation? That was you. Would you say, that's it, God's abandoned me, all abandoned me. I'm in this foreign land, I might as well just become a part of it and just settle in, make the best that I can do. What would you? What, what does Daniel do? Let's read on. But Daniel determined he would not defile himself. He determined that he would not give in, that he would continue to stand up and to serve God. He stood. Now you might kind of think about why, what's the problem with eating the king's food and drinking his wine? Surely that would be quite a good thing to do, to look after yourself. 
Well, one of the, some of the laws that God had given the people of Israel was that, one, they were to only eat clean food. And so in modern-day Jews, they kind of follow this, and it's kind of kosher food. And they weren't allowed to eat certain, other ty- certain types of food. And whatever the king served, you had no idea what it was. But the other thing that's, that's probably slightly more important is that they were told, as the people of Israel, to never eat any food that had been, worshipped, that had been offered to any other idols, to any other gods. And that was completely against, they shouldn't have been doing that at all. And, the, and the, um, with the king's food, it would have been offered to the Babylonian gods. It would have been offered to think, it would have been um, an act of worship for them to give it to their, to offer it to God and then give it to all the people. And so Daniel and his friends knew that if they ate that food, they'd be defiling themselves. They'd be going against God's will and heart for their lives. And so they stood. And they had faith in God. So the next thing was, what happened in the story is they said, we don't want to eat that food, we want to eat just vegetables and water. And the palace guard at the time said to them, well, you can't do that, because if you don't do it, you'll get really weak, and then I'll get in trouble, and I'll get my head chopped off. But Daniel had faith in God. He knew how faithful God was. And he said, well, look, let's, let's, let's test it out. Let's give it 10 days, we'll eat just vegetables and water, and see what happens, and then, you'll make it, and then you can make a decision. And so, of course, what happens? God comes through and we find after 10 days they're looking much healthier and much radiant, more radiant than all the other people who had eaten it. You notice it was only these four guys that did this. All the other people from Israel that had been captured, they all just kind of went with the flow. But Daniel and his friends stood up. And for us, where are the things in our life that we compromise on? That we know God is asking us or not asking us to do something and we, we give in. We don't, we're not prepared to stand up and to kind of go against the flow like Daniel and his friends did. And we say, oh, it's only a little thing. God won't mind. I'll just do this. It's, it's all right. God, you understand. See, what Daniel did is he drew a line in the sand and said, that's it. I'm not crossing that line. I'll come. I'll, I'll put up with being in, uh, in slavery and in captured and all these other things, but I'm not going to defile myself. This is where I'm going to stand. And that's the same for us. So we have to make a decision about what is our line that God is asking us to draw? Where are we going to stand up for him? And we could be in a whole different range of situations. It might be that something's going on at work and you need to not do it. Or it's something that God is calling you to do in church and you're saying, oh, I don't want to do that. You might have to stand up and do it. But it's so easy for us sometimes to just say, oh, it's okay. God, it's only a little thing. It'll be fine. Well, I think the thing, we, thing I found in my life is that when you make a stand over the small things, it makes taking a stand over the bigger things much easier. Because God never tests us, never puts us in a really difficult situation, first of all, like he's going to put with these guys later on in their lives. He puts them, just gives them a small, small, small thing to stand in. And so we need to be people who, who stand for God in those difficult situations. So what does God do? How does God react to Daniel and his friends standing up for him? Well, he honours them. Not only does he make them uh, healthier, he also it says that these, these four men, there was no one else like them in all the people that got trained, and it gave the, it gave these four young men knowledge and skills in both books and life. And when they got to be interviewed at the end of their university course by King Nebuchadnezzar, he said he was more impressed with them than anybody else. There was no one else that was a match for these people. See, when we make a stand for God and we look to honour him in order to honour him, not for ourselves, 
God always honours us. I found that true in my life and true in other people's lives. That when we do it, not to try and get glory for ourselves, but to honour God, God always sees. And we've got, uh, some of us here have got an old friend, a guy called Steve DeVille, which I think some of you might know. And uh, when we were in a previous church, we were all quite young men, and uh, he came over here and he got a job in MFI. Now, does anybody remember MFI? Basically, if you don't, uh, it, was a, it was a furniture shop that sold kitchens. And he got a job there. And he said to them when he got the job, I'm not going to work Sundays because I go to church. And they said to him, you're nuts. You've got to work Sunday. Sunday's our busiest day. It's where the day we make the most sales. And if you want to hit your targets, you've got to work on a Sunday. And Steve said, no, I'm, I'm not going to work a Sunday. I'll trust God. And guess what? God honoured Steve. He never once missed, when he tried hard, um, and he worked... <laughs> He always, always hit sales targets, even though he never worked a Sunday. God honours us if we take that stand for him. So that's Daniel as a young man. And I think for us, certainly as we're young in our, some of us here are young in our faith, um, sometimes we've got these little things that we have to make a stand against and say, no, I'm for God on this. And even it costs me, and it's tough, I'm going to stand. Now, so we're going to move on to chapter three. Okay, so a lot of time has passed, and we're going to skip chapter two. But if you want to read chapter two, it's about... God using Daniel to interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And life has moved on, and Daniel and his friends have been honoured, and God has raised them up, and it says they have high positions in the kingdom of Babylon. And life is quite good for them. I'm sure they've probably got quite a nice life, been in charge of different things. They can make a a difference in the kingdom. They can bless people. They've probably got a great house to live in, lots of servants. Life is pretty good for them. But one thing you'll notice about chapter 3 is Daniel was not in it. Um, I don't know where he is. Arthur asked me this question this week about where Daniel was, and I've got no clue. But the only thing I could probably guess is that he was probably off somewhere else. He wasn't actually in the the town of Babylon or city of Babylon at this time. He was off somewhere else. So we're going to focus on his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I'm going to use their Babylonian names because that's what the Bible does, and it gets confusing if we use different names. So for them, life is good. But then Nebuchadnezzar's pride comes into play. Because in chapter 2, God had given him uh, this dream about something, and it gives them an idea. And so he decides to set up a 90-foot gold statue of himself, as you do. And he says to everybody, right, when the music plays, everybody needs to bow down to me. Because this is how great I am. I'm so magnificent. I'm so amazing. You need to bow down and worship me because look at me, no one can stand in my way, I've conquered the world I am like a god his pride comes in, he says you've got to bow down and worship me, and so it says, if you want to read it, and he says anyone who does not kneel and worship shall be thrown immediately into a fiery into a roaring furnace so basically if you don't do it you're dead, so you've got to worship me now I hope this works. Now it might be if maybe Tim decides that maybe he gets a slightly big head leading his church and he thinks maybe, you know, this is Nebuchadnezzar, he was onto something. And so maybe he decides that as a church we've got to start doing things. So every time his picture comes on the screen, we've got to bow down and his, work, and his music comes on. <laughs> Sorry. Love to, love to cane Tim. Now, thankfully, I, I know Tim, and I trust that Tim is never going to bring out a command in our church that says we've all got to bow down and worship him. 
So I'll just put that as a bit of a joke. <laughs> but Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they didn't have... Nebuchadnezzar wasn't like Tim. He was a very proudful man. He wanted everyone to bow down. So what are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego going to do? They've got this nice life. Are they going to bow down or are they going to stand for God? Because it would have been very easy for them to go, do you know what? We'll just fake it, okay? When the music plays, we'll just kind of we'll bow down and we'll just won't really pay attention. Or maybe we'll sit at the back and then no one notice us. We'll just do it in the corner. We'll bow down, it'll be fine. Or maybe we'll go along with it all, but we'll like inside, we won't really mean it. We'll just, just bow down. Or maybe we'll, as we bow down, we'll just ask for God's forgiveness. Lord, I'm really sorry I'm doing this. Lord, oh, will you forgive me? They've got that choice, haven't they? Because then that would just, things, and at some, I'm sure at some point, Nebuchadnezzar would move on to something else they wouldn't have to do it anymore. But it says in the word, they didn't. They didn't bow down. They must have stood out like a sore thumb. And the music plays, literally everybody bows down and stands up. Have you ever been in that embarrassing situation where everyone's kind of sitting up or standing down in church and you're suddenly not really paying attention, so you're the only one standing up? It would have been like them, for, it would have been like that for them. And I tell you what, for us in our lives, I think that certainly for us who have moved on in, in life and our faith has kind of been, we've kind of got a settled faith, we've got a settled life, and that we find it's not these, these kind of big um, things that come in, it's quite, we get little subtle things that come in, it says maybe on this we just, just bow over this, we just bow over that. And, and it becomes difficult because I think it, it's not something that always becomes that obvious like a big 90 foot gold statue. But sometimes God says, well, will you do this for me? Or will this, I've got a change of plans for you. Will you come and follow me? I know that's a challenge for my life. And I'm in a situation right now where my life's pretty good. I've got a lovely family. I've got a nice house. I've got a good job that pays quite well. I'm part of an awesome church. You guys are fantastic. Um, I love to be here. I get the chance to minister and people to enjoy my ministry, hopefully. And... And I could think, well, why do I want to change things? Life is good. But I know at some point God might, I don't know what he's got his plans for me, but at some point God might say, well, I want to change all that. I'll take you somewhere else. You're not going to have a job or you're not going to be part of this nice church. You're going to, things are going to be really tough. And what am I going to do at that situation? Am I going to stand up for God and say, yes, I'll follow you? Or am I going to say, do you know what, God? I'm not sure you're onto something there, God. It's quite, what you've got here is quite good already. So as you start and you think, oh, I want to stay here and I can still be part of this church and minister. I'm really blessing you, God, because I'm doing loads of great things for you and you're loving it. But of course, as soon as you start doing that and start wanting to follow God, we start bowing down. And so what happens to these guys? So they stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and say, we're not going to bow down. And so he comes and he challenges them. And he says he's furious when he hears because basically some people dob them in. So he gets them, brings them into his court, and says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't respect my gods and refuse to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I am giving you a second chance. But from now on, when the big band strikes up, you must go to your knees and worship the statue I have made. And if you don't worship it, you'll be thrown into the roaring fire, and that's it. Who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Isn't, isn't Nebuchadnezzar so gracious? He gives him a second chance. But if they don't do it, that's it, they're gone. It's a bit like you can imagine the guys are in the court 
And they almost got his henchmen surrounding them, saying, look, you're going to do this, or bang, you're gone. When the pressure really comes on, what do they do? Because they've stood up for God, and they said, no, we're not going to do it, and now their life is on the line. What do they do? Because I know for us here, I don't think anybody here woke up this morning and thought, what's going to happen to me if I come to, ch- if I come to church this morning? We're very blessed in this country that we don't have to think like that. But we know there are millions of Christians around the world who will wake up and they will think that this morning. Well, what is going to happen? And they've got this choice. They say, are they going to stand over this big thing or are they going to kneel? And tell, I love their response because they respond in trust to God. This is their response. Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us into the fire... The God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace or anything else you might cook up, O king. But even if he doesn't, we'll make a bit of difference. O king, we still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. These guys were brave. To stand that to the king, the most powerful man in the world, to stand up and say, just go for it. We're not going to bow down to you. They respond in trust to God. And I think it's one of the most um, powerful statements in the Bible, what they said. You know, our God is able, and he might do it, he might not. But it doesn't matter. Our lives, we're prepared to give them up because we want to stand for God. But the thing they did is they remembered God's power. And again, it would have been so easy for them to forget. Bear in mind, this would have been years gone since they come from Israel. But they remembered God's power about how great and how big he is. And I think sometimes for us, when we're in really difficult situations, it's so easy for us to forget who our God is. But he's the God of the universe. He's the God that created this world. He's the God that made you and me. And he's the God that is in control. We've been singing about this this morning. That God is in control of all things. And they knew that and they trusted in God that he was able to do this or he was also able not to do it. But it didn't matter. They were going to do it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, you can imagine, I like, I like the way the message says this, his face purple with anger. He's, you can just contort. How dare these people stand up to me? I am the most powerful man in the world. And who are these idiots that are doing this? And so he ordered the fiery furnace to be fired up seven times hotter than normal. Now, you might wonder why he said the fiery furnace. Now, to... To make that gold statue, they'd have had to basically get all these furnaces. Now, I'm not really a a metal expert, um, even though I technically work with metal, but that's a different matter. So what they did, they had these fiery furnaces here, and so they would use them to heat them up, to put the gold in, and to melt it down to make the statue. And this apparently is a, Google this, this is a picture of a modern day, uh, sorry, of an ancient Babylonian fiery furnace. It would have looked something like this. So basically said, fire up seven times hotter, um, and so you and then chuck them in there. And so what he did, he got the three guys, he bound them up, so literally they were like this, and he got these best guards to pick them up, carry them over his shoulder, and to basically run into that furnace and throw them in. Now apparently it was so hot that the guards who threw them in died because it was that hot for them. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar sitting a bit quite far away from it because it had been very hot, he'd been sitting there sweating, but really with a big smile on his face saying, ha, Who's these people to oppose me? I'm in charge here. What happens? What does God do? 
God comes and he rescues these three guys. Because Nebuchadnezzar is looking on outside, he's looking in, and he says this. He jumps up in alarm and said, did we throw three men bound hand and foot into the fire? That's right, O king. But look, I see four men walking around free in the fire, completely unharmed, and the fourth man looks like the son of the gods. See, God was with them in the fire. In the most difficult time when their life was literally on the line, God was with them. We don't know who that fourth person was, whether it was an angel or whether it was Jesus or whatever, but God was there with them. You notice that when they came out, the only things that had burned on them were their chains. Everything else about them was completely unharmed. Their clothes didn't, um, weren't smoking, weren't on fire, didn't come out kind of naked, singed. Nothing, no hair on their head was even harmed. And it said they didn't even smell of smoke. So God came through and saved them and set them free from the bondage. I think sometimes when we prepare to stand up to God, even in a difficult situation, we find that God comes through and God works in the situation if we let him. If we don't give in and bow down. And you find that God then come and change the situation. And Nebuchadnezzar changed. Um, and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angels and rescued his servants. And he finishes, they, put their li- their, uh, they laid their bodies on the line rather than serve or worship any god but their own. So Nebuchadnezzar could see the power of God. Because these, these three men were prepared to stand, even when it was difficult. And it would have been so much easier just to just to bow down, let life flow on, carry on. And it said that God raised them up even more. So now we're going to look into, we're going to move on and look at chapter 6. We're going to go back to look at Daniel's life. Um, so what happens in, in chapter to 4 is that God really comes and deals with Nebuchadnezzar's pride, if you want to read it yourself. And in chapter 5, God comes and deals justice to the kingdom of Babylon. And basically they come and get conquered. And a new superpower comes into town. It's a nation called the Medes and the Persians. And there's a new king called King Darius. And he comes in, and the nation's even bigger. But it says that Daniel still was serving God. And he was so good that he got raised right all the way up. So literally, he was like in the top realms of government. He reported directly to the king. And he was one of three men that basically had the most power in the kingdom. But, and this is the story where we get Daniel on the lines then. But who here kind of seen many pictures like this? And I put this up on purpose. Because we think, we see the Sunday school stories and we look and say, isn't Daniel a young, dashing, handsome young man full of, full of vitality and bravery? He's going to go and stand the lines then. But that wasn't the case. Daniel at this time was probably between 80 to 90 years old. Are there any 80 to 90 year olds in the audience this morning? Fred, I hear you you're might be 81. Fancy going to fight with some lions? So Daniel is quite old, basically come near to the end of his life. And this is kind of next stage for some of us. So we have been going on with the Lord for a long time. And we have seen it all. And we've been through it all. And poor Daniel, he probably feels the same. Because guess what? The same thing happens again in this time. We've got a new king, a new situation. But basically, the other people who are in charge of the government didn't really like Daniel. They wanted to get rid of him for whatever reasons. Maybe they wanted a bit more power. And so they tried to get rid of him. But the trouble was, Daniel was so good, there was nothing wrong. They couldn't find any fault with him. They couldn't find any fault with the way that he managed uh, the kingdom or any kind of um, uh, problems like that. And so they had to come up with a way to trick him. 
So guess what they did? They did the old trial, they did the old thing, they appealed to the king's pride. They went up to this King Darius and said, oh, Darius, you're so great. Why don't you set up a law that says for the next 30 days, only, you're the only person that people can come and worship. No other gods or anything like that it can only be you. Of course, he's a king, he's prideful, he says, yeah, that's a good law. And so he signs it, puts it into law, and for the next 30 days, no one can worship anybody but him. Poor Daniel. He's 80, 90 years old. He's probably tired and weary. And here he is again. How does he respond? Does he say, well, it's only 30 days. God, I'm going on holiday. I'll see you in 30 days. Or maybe does he kind of go and lock himself in the basement and say, well, no one can see me down here. I'll just pray in secret. How does Daniel respond? He stands. Well, not well. He actually goes down and gets down on his knees. But he goes back to his house, he opens the window so everybody can see him, and he gets on his knees and he prays to God, thanking and praising him. And of course the people were trying to trick him, the conspirators, they knew what he was going to do, so they went there and came and they said they found him asking God for help. And they took him to the king and they said, hey king, do you remember that law you passed? And he was like, yes. He was like, well, we called Daniel praying to his God. At that point, King Darius was like, ah, I've been tricked, because he really liked Daniel. And he tried really hard to get him him out of it, but he couldn't. And so he was going to have to go to the lion's den. And you think it would have been so easy for Daniel just to kind of give up. He's old, he's come to the end of it, he's nearly probably going to, nearly the end of his life. And he's probably a bit weary from it all, having served his whole life in another nation that's completely foreign to his own culture and his own land, far away from the temple, but he continues to serve God. And when he gets the opportunity, does he give in? No. He stands up for God. But you notice, he still needs God's help. He's still asking him to say, God, will you help me? And so what happens next? So the king realised he couldn't get out of his own law, and he put Daniel in the lion's den and said, well, your God to whom you're so loyal is going to get you out of this. So he had a bit of trust in God. It's a stone there and he seals it with his signet ring. And the reason why he does that is it means that he can't be quite clever and put the stone there and goes home and when he comes back, get Daniel out of it. It basically means, Daniel, that's it. Nobody can rescue Daniel. And the king comes back the next morning and says to Daniel, said, Daniel, serve the living God. Has your God whom you serve so loyal saved you from the lions? Of course, we've all read the Sunday school story, so we know what happens. Of course, God saves him. God comes through and rescues Daniel once again. And Daniel comes back and says, look, king, you know I've not tried to, I'm innocent before God. I've done nothing to harm you. And so King Darius pulls him out, probably been quite uncomfortable for Daniel if he pulled out of lines then. And instead, all the conspirators get thrown in and said, instead. You see, Daniel, Daniel had trusted God again and he had run the race. And I think it's so easy, and I'm sure I'm not at that stage yet, but to have been in our Christian life, when we get near the end, because it says in the, in the Apostle Paul and in the writer of Hebrews, encourage us to keep running the race. And it probably gets to a point where we start to feel weary. And feel, oh, I've been through this. Not again, God. Not again. But Daniel was faithful to the end. And you know, there's some people who really encourage me in this area. It's my mum and dad. Now, though most of you here will know my mum and dad. They were the, the pastors here. They set this church up. And a few years ago, God was called them on to go and pastor another church down in Worthing. And off they went. And it's been tough for them. It has been hard and it has been difficult. 
And I'm sure there are points they would have gone, God, why, why are we going through all this again? We've gone through all this stuff in the past. We've, we've had enough. Let's just go and retire. Because they're in Worthing, which is quite a nice retirement place. We go and just spend our time going to a nice, easy, nice church. Where we can just go, go along and just spend our time going to cafes on the beach, uh, by the beach and fish and chips. Sounds nice, doesn't it? But my parents, they haven't. They've continued to serve God, even when it's been difficult and they probably want to give up. They keep going. And that encourages me. And I hope that when I'm their age, I'm in the same place. I want to keep going and keep going, even if I have to do it again. Keep standing for God. And we have a call to answer this morning. Are we going to be men and women who stand for God? Or are we going to be people who compromise? Are we going to be people that bow the knee? Or are we going to be people to give up? I want to finish by reading one last scripture from Hebrews chapter 4. And it's uh, chapter, verse 14 to 16. Now that we know what we have, Jesus, this great high priest with ready access to God, let's not let it slip through our fingers. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he's so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. See, we've got something better than Daniel and his friends have. We have Jesus. And we have, I was pointing to the cross, but the kids have got it out. Well, we have what he's done at the cross. And we have him in heaven daily pleading before God, interceding for us. Because I know in my life there have been times when I've compromised. There have been times when I've given up or bowed the knee. And I'm sure we've all been there. We've all done it. We've all been failures, unlike Daniel. But we know with Jesus, he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't only give us two chances like Nebuchadnezzar. And if we mess up again, that's it. He's had enough of us. He continually keeps forgiving us and keeps doing it. So even when we fall down and we don't stand, God, Jesus is there to pick us up. See, Jesus is there for us all the time. And it says here that Jesus has been through everything. When he was here on the earth and he was being tested, he's been through it all. He's the one person that's lived his life and has gone through all the difficult situations, all the things when it had been so easy to give in or to stop or to give up. Jesus went through it all. And it says, all but the sin. And it encourages verses here, encourage us to keep going up to him. It's not enough just to go once to Jesus, just say, will you help me, Jesus? We need to keep doing it, keep finding his grace, his love, his mercy for our life when we mess up. And the last thing I want to encourage us to do, we need to accept the help. How often have we been in situations where things are difficult and we don't go to Jesus? We try and sort it out ourselves, or we try and get our friends to sort it out. We need to go and ask Jesus. He is so ready to come and help us. He's ready to be there with us when we need to stand and we find it difficult, we're finding it a struggle, we're messing up. He is there for us and he wants to come and help us. And we are called as Christians, as men and women of God, to stand whatever or wherever we are in God. He wants us to stand and take on that responsibility of standing for God. And if we try and do it in our own strength, we'll last a while, but after a while we'll crack. Where if we stand in Christ and in Christ alone, then we can stand like Daniel did, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, even when our lives are on the line, we can stand if we do it in the power of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So I'd like to, I think, 
going to finish there. I'd like to, to just respond by singing and ask Tim and the band to, or to, to, to come up.